Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. Every week I invite in a special guest to do our big profile interview. We talk to someone of interest not only about what they're well known for in their day job, but their lifetime, their career, and some of the issues facing the country. It's a great pleasure to welcome a man who, in many respects, is a legend. He's an all-star. He's won two Sam Maguires. He's won five Leinster titles uh, as a great midfielder. But not only that, he's had a successful career in journalism and has been a publisher, a very innovative one, with new national and local newspapers. He's a man who dominated the midfield for the great Meath team of the 80s and 90s. Liam Hayes, you're very welcome to Yates on Sunday. First of all, how are you? Because I was reading about, I think it was around uh, 2010, when you were shaving and found this lump on your neck. Mm -hmm. uh, And and then you had the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then you were very close to getting the all clear, having been through a harrowing time. And you are back in the zone again. First of all, just tell us about the current state of play in your battle with cancer. I'm doing well, Ivan. <clears throat> There's no great drama at the moment. I, I go into St. James's every six weeks for a top-up and on a maintenance programme. Uh, as you say, I, I got uh, non-Hodgkins in 2010. Almost hit the famous five-year mark uh, of, in terms of remission. Uh, but I was clean after 2010. And then it recurred in 2015. I found a lump on the back of my neck on that occasion. Again, like the first time I gave it two or three weeks, hoping it would disappear, but they never do. Well, they seldom do. And um, went back in and had four months of chemo uh, in the end of 2015, early 2016. So um, that was stage three. Uh, first time it was stage one. So bottom line is that... So I've, what's the difference between stage one and three? Uh, stage one is sort of an, an earlier form of cancer. Stage three means it's above and below the diaphragm. Uh, and it goes to stage four. Stage three is a you know obviously more serious uh, form. Um, so, and the difference was in terms of the symptoms between ten and and fifteen. No big difference. The first time, uh, first time. Like, I had, did you feel ill? No, felt perfect. Felt very strong. Uh, first time I had three months of chemo and radiotherapy. The second time I just had four months of chemo. Um, my chemo is a chemo is a is a is a concoction called Orchop, and you can only get a finite amount of it. So my cancer is follicular. I didn't know there was such a thing as follicular cancer. It's follic- what is follicular? follicular means that it's recurring, right. and it will recur again. So that's what they've told me. And next time. When it recurs, it um, I'd be looking at bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant or something like that, which again is quite common. Uh, and also the team at St. James's are, are, are remarkable. And there's so many studies being done now and, and, and different forms of cancer and lymphoma that genuinely there is no great daily drama attached to my illness at all. So, um, like, you've more hair than me. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like, you don't seem to have chemo I symptoms. No uh, hair at all 18 <laughs> months ago. I was, right. Yeah, for, absolutely. Yeah, no, the, 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 my hair disappeared all over my body uh, during the chemo process. So when you look in the mirror at that stage, you do look very ill. You do look shocking and I think you look a bit surprising. I remember reading people. at the time <clears throat> your story of, of just how grim some of the treatment was. And in terms of the whole dealing of the psychology of cancer... Mm-hmm. Did did you feel or do you feel it's something of 
a death sentence, a terminal illness? Or do you say, look, you know, in the round, I could have a lot of things. I could have a heart condition. I could have, you know, different mm. disabilities. It's not too bad. Or do you feel it is kind of an, a life-altering event? It's, it's definitely altering, Ivan. I mean, it gives you a different perspective for a period of time only. Unfortunately, life and all life's, you know, little dramas and unnecessary dramas, you know, come back into play very quickly when you you know, when you come back, get back on your feet after an illness and after treatment. So, you know, but in terms of, of the illness itself, I, mean, I always feel that we're really built, and this is not a macho thing at all, uh, because in St. James, you know, I see a lot of people, a lot of young kids. I think it's awful when you see young kids sitting in a big blue armchair beside you having treatment. I mean, it just seems wrong to see teenage kids having to go through treatment like that, whereas, you know, you know, a 55-year-old man, it, it's, it's something that's going to happen, you know. So, um but I think we're all built to face anything. I don't mean that in a macho way. I've gone through tough times in football and business and health. And I think once we know what we're facing, we're built as human beings to really face face anything. And I think that's the history of mankind. You know, we can face anything and we do. And the courage of people who are who have been stricken down with terminal cancer and, and far worse cases than me is that their bravery and their courage is just inspiring. But I think we all have that. Hopefully we all have that within us. You afraid of dying? No, not at all. And uh, I'm never, terrified of dying. No, I've never had a fear of dying. Uh, I would like to live as long as my We're dad. We're just kind of game over. I would like to live as long as my dad. He 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 died at seventy six. He worked till seventy seventy till he was seventy five. Jim Hayes, and then he died at seventy six. I always thought that was a tragedy because he didn't have any retirement time. He died of a heart attack. So I always said I'd like to get to seventy six. I think if I get to seventy six, I'd be doing very well, um, and match his his years on this earth. So that's the only thing that's ever in my mind. But no, that doesn't. I don't have any fear of death at all. Which and is, if someone listening just got a cancer diagnosis or mm. someone close to them, would you, what would you say to them? Would you say, look, the stats are 85% of people survive this? Or what would you say to them? You get all sorts of percentages. I mean, I've had a lot of percentages thrown at me over the last seven years. And you can look at them any way, any which way. Sometimes they can look very good and sometimes they can look very bad. Uh, for instance, more recently I was told that, you know, uh, if, the, if, if when my cancer recurs, uh, my treatment, I think there would be a Three, three out of four success rate uh, with some of the, so it means you know one person dies perhaps and I don't mean this in a trite way uh, but and that seems quite good but if you went into a room with four people and you were told that one of you was going to get shot you'd say it's a bit of Russian don't, roulette don't yeah. fancy my odds yeah, yeah, one yeah, out, you know yeah, yeah. so you can look at it any which way I don't tend to look at it and, and, and focus and on it does it, it make long. a difference does it make a difference in terms of the people who really want to mentally fight it, as opposed to people who say, "Well, you know, this is my fate." I, I honestly believe that we have just massive reservoirs of courage, and and most people fight it. I mean, I think there is a difference. But does it a, make a difference? Well, the, the the big difference is, and I've written about my cancer on many occasions, and each time I've done so, I've and I've been very careful. Is that you know, people who get a terminal diagnosis, it's like you know, looking down a very, you know, a very short, dark alleyway. Whereas, you know, my cancer, I've been told, you've got a chance, there's a percentage, you, you will, percentage that you'll survive. And that's a whole different ball game than being told, you, you know, you, you've got a terminal case. Uh, I've no idea how I would react if that was the, if that was the situation with my life. I, do think, I don't fear death at all, never have um, at any stage. Uh, and I think I'd be okay if that was, the, if that was to occur. But, I, you know, you've seen people and we've all read, you know, writings by people who have been you know, received a terminal diagnosis and they're just amazing, amazing courage. 
And I note that your mother was a religious person. Are you a religious person? Uh, no. A lot of people who aren't afraid of death is because they think I'm a slam dunk to get into yeah. heaven. I am not so confident <laughs> myself after the life I've led. So I'm a bit more dubious about that. What, what, are you religious? No, I'm not. I don't believe in, in any formal religion. Uh, I do believe in, in spirituality. I do believe in in in, uh, in the spiritual world. Uh, but no, I don't believe in any formal religion. Okay. Now, let's go back to your teenage days and you were writing for the Meath Chronicle. Did you always want to be a journalist? Yeah, I did. It was the only thing I wanted to do. Um, And uh, at that stage, there weren't many courses that you could take. I mean, there weren't a variety of courses in universities and colleges. So I joined my local newspaper at 18. In Navan? In Navan, yeah. And... uh, so I worked as a news reporter and a sports reporter for five years. And if you like, it was, you know, serving at my apprenticeship. Um, cub reporter? Cub reporter. Did you cover everything from council meetings to local club matches or what? The whole works, yeah. Council meetings, courts. Tom Mooney was my editor. Uh, oh, I went on to the Echo and all that. Yeah, yeah Tom, no, Tom yeah. fine journalist, fine yeah. editor. I learned, I learned my business under Tom initially. And um, he brought me into the business. He gave me my first break. Um, and uh, interestingly, when I started Ireland on Sunday, Tom joined me as my chief sub. So it was nice that our relationship went full circle. And, and in day. between that, you, you worked in the press group. Yeah. And you spoke about that and the closure of that. as as And I remember that in terms of that it was almost something that hit the national psyche at the time. It was shocking. I mean, it's shocking when you look back on the Irish press because the papers were doing good numbers even when they closed. You know, the Irish press daily paper was still selling about 30,000 a day. I think the evening press was selling around 40,000, 50,000. And the Sunday press, the paper on which I worked, was still selling the guts of 100,000. So, you know... (laughs) They were big numbers. Serious numbers. Yeah, and if, any, if most newspaper companies had those sort of numbers now, they'd be very happy and they'd be able to build a business around it. But the press went very quickly uh, and uh, it was quite shocking at the time. Most of the, you know, most of the people found re-employment and most of the people, you know, got on with their lives. But at the time, a lot of people uh, found themselves on the streets and there was a lock-in, obviously, for about, uh, for, for about three or four weeks. Uh, Give, but given that you had that sobering experience of people getting P45s mm-hmm. and actually, you know, the whole f- financial sort of stress in relation to leading up to a closure, did that not make you more risk averse when it came to setting up the title? It was interesting. I, as soon as the press closed, uh, I had my mind set that I wanted to, you know, to start my own business and. I, I often wonder, looking back, if the press hadn't closed, would have would have had take, would I have taken that step? So the press for me, the, the closing of that of that big newspaper group was a good thing. Uh, within eighteen months, I had set up the title sports 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 paper, uh, and brought some of the people from the uh, press group and gave them employment, uh, which is always a you know nice thing to be able to do. Um, How did you get the money together to set it up? Really from a group of, of business people uh, over the course of the title and then Ireland on Sunday and then other newspapers and other ventures after that. Uh, I was lucky in that uh, I was able to... But how does a sports hack go to people with money and say, I want you to invest? Did you have connections through the GAA or what? You build it around, absolutely, you build it around friends and you build it around introductions you make. I mean, two men who, you know, I built my companies around were Peter, were Peter Quinn, the former president of the GAA, and Pascal Taggart, former uh, ah, chairman of... I know Pascal well. Uh, so, Speaking to him only yesterday. Yeah, I mean, both men played a huge role in uh, financing the operations. Uh, without them, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, but 
through there, you know, through their friendships, uh, I was able to build my own investor circle and people who I would go to, who I'm, whom I would pitch. Uh, so, for instance, with the title, we raised a million to set the paper up. With Ireland on Sunday, we had to raise uh, a further three million. Uh, with the Dublin Daily, which was a uh, which was a um, very brief, uh, we'll come to that. But just just the notion mm. of that a, a a national like Le Keep or something like a national sports paper, like mm. I get the Racing Post every day, mm. and that does my fix for sport because it covers not just racing, all things. Um, were you convinced there was a national market for a sports only paper? I mean, do you take something like the Sunday Business Post? It has no sport. Mm. Which is the opposite. Yeah, and, and we, you know, we were looking at the Sunday Business Post when we set up the title. I think the Sunday Business Post had a circulation in the mid twenties, uh, so we set the title up. And uh, in, in all honesty, Ivan, with all with all the newspapers I've started, you do have a finger in the air to an extent in terms of yeah, hoping circulancy. Yeah, and hoping the wind is blowing to your to your advantage. We looked at the Business Post, and you had to pick a number. We said the Business Post is doing mid twenties in terms of circulation every Sunday, so we pitched the title to sell fifty thousand papers every Sunday. We landed at uh, 23 and a half which uh, didn't get us there and and because of that we built Ireland on Sunday very quickly around the title Now uh, in what year sorry and you, then it was sold to Scottish Radio Holdings was it yeah. and that was a successful thing you got a few quid out of it Everyone and, and then the Mail on Sunday took it over That's right That, that was an onward and upward story yeah. and to this day then you work as sports editor is it for the IMOS Yeah I, I, I when I when I got sick, I decided to maybe take a step back. I still publish sports books. Myself and my wife, we have, we have a publishing company called Hero Books. Um, but I, I returned, which again was nice. I returned to DMG Media, who, who published the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. And I'm a head of sport uh, with them now for, for, for all their titles. So it sort of came full circle. Yeah, and it was good because when, when I went back into DMG Media and the Mail papers, uh, some of the people whom I had first employed uh, 12, 13, 14 years earlier were still there uh, so it was good it was good to go back to see and to is see there friends. something as opposed to opening a delicatessen or mm. a laundrette is there a bit of an ego trip involved in launching a newspaper of course there is yeah I mean you, you know you love to be bringing something you love to be a little bit I mean of, an ego trip is against a business plan yeah there's a bit of everything involved because you like to be a bit audacious and you know you like to you know I think part of it you know, in, in business, for a lot of people, the risk is part of it. You like the risk as well. You know what I mean? Uh, but that's a business thing. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the sort of vanity of seeing your name in lights. And... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone's adverse to that. It's nice It's nice to edit a newspaper. I mean, there's only so many editors. I, I, had, the, I had the pleasure of editing Ireland on Sunday for four years. I enjoyed every day of it. And it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pressure situation. It's also a demanding situation in terms of you've got to make good decisions. And decisions concerning people's lives and stories that you should or should not publish on a daily basis. Uh, and, and that's a learning curve. I look back um, on that and some stories I regret publishing. Other stories I'm very proud to be published. What do you regret publishing? Uh, there was a couple of stories that I feel that maybe we stepped over a line. I think, I think, I think mainly since I got ill is that I'm more aware that, you know, there are certain times when, you know, life is precious and people's lives... Uh, you know, people deserve some more greater levels of privacy. And sometimes things go wrong for people, whether it's in business or whether it's in love or whatever. And they don't necessarily need, you know, need to find themselves in newspapers or, you know. But it helps sell media. papers. It helps sell. And unfortunately, that's part of the business. Um, but at, at other levels, I mean, we, we had stories on the cars. And so you found your scruples now that you're no longer. <laughs> yeah, we had stories on the cars. We had stories on Bertie Ahern and, and, uh, and, um, Mary McAleese, we went to war with a good few people uh, on good stories. So, yeah, no, they're fun times and good times.
And do you think generally the 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 media, because people would say about the tabloids, that's on steroids, what you've just said. Mm. Do, do, do you think we have a press council? Do you think we actually have reasonable balance between controls and freedom? There's a, it, it, you get all sorts of views, Ivan. I mean, you know, within newspapers, obviously the libel laws are so harsh now at this stage. Uh, and, you know, I, I was treated to that as editor of Ireland on Sunday. I mean, I saw for myself exactly how tough it could be. And how so you think there are adequate legal protections for the individual? I think there are. And, and some people feel like there should be more freedom of the press. I mean, and I'm, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I think if you gave greater freedoms to the media, I think you'd have, you'd have chaos and anarchy. I think the, 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 the uh, balance is correct as we, as we stand. Okay. In the cockpit of the battle every morning for people to buy newspapers, what made anyone thought a Dublin Daily would work? God knows. It, it, for me, it was on the rebound. You know the way they talk about rebound from, yeah, from romance, relationships romance, and, yeah. and romance. Yeah. For me, it was a rebound. and Never uh, a good idea. Never a good idea. <laughs> and I remember Dublin Daily, we raised four and a half, five million to launch that with some good people. Uh, I, you know, I hitched up with Colin Greeley, who was... Uh, an innovative uh, first digital sort of genius in this country who formed online.ie a very intelligent a very smart man and uh, we decided that we would reverse a newspaper out of his digital company uh, which uh, seemed a good idea at the time we we raised a lot of money we had a lot of good people involved but I remember right up to the week before we launched I remember thinking and looking and saying we've got about three out of six boxes ticked here and the other three weren't ticked in terms of exactly knowing the market exactly knowing who our competitors were going to be Uh, and and you were up against a free sheet at the time as well. we were up against everything and it was amazing that we thought when you looked at most cities most cities had their own newspaper and Dublin didn't have its own newspaper and we in theory Dublin should still have its own newspaper but we were devoured within three days we were devoured by everybody Okay there's lots I need to discuss but before I move off publishing and printing explain to me this and I work in media everyone tells me for the last five years uh, print is in trouble declining audience advertising moving online blah 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 blah, all negative and yet tomorrow on the newsstands will be seven newspapers. In fact, new, a new one with the Times mm. of London publishing a hard copy. You have all the stars, the suns, the endos, the times, the examiner and all this. And we've had this recession as well. And we still have seven titles. Mm. One day will we wake up and find there's three or not? Or why have they all survived? The Tribune is the only one that's actually gone under. Yeah. And it's amazing they have survived and, and no, they won't survive. Others, the more it's only a matter of time. Yeah, more will go down. But I think the, the companies that, and the papers will survive, and I'm only talking about, in this instance, the Daily Mail uh, and the Mail on Sunday. You know, the DMG Media is headed by Paul Henderson, uh, group editor Sebastian Hamilton. And watching them work over the last four or five years, these are smart people. They have built a lot of digital uh, titles as well, like Extra.ie and Evoke.ie are built out of the mail. But can anyone make money out of digital? They are making money and they're actually being able to balance, you know, in terms of loss of sales with digital revenues. But So I think it comes down to every company is, is, it depends on the strength of the people in each company. I think the stronger companies with the best people will survive and others will go under, unfortunately. But there will be a lot of, of uh, there will be a lot of um, uh, car crashes in terms of media over the next five, ten years. Okay. Um the fact that it hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't happen. It's going to happen. Yeah, okay. All right. A bit, like, ta- uh, bit, bit like follicular cancer. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Let's talk about uh, Gaelic football. Um, 30 years ago today, Leinster final day, throw in at four o'clock. Mm. I will be previewing it. Um, it's in one way a long time ago, but when one looks at the likes of 
Lyons, O'Connell, McEntee, Beggy, Stafford, Flynn, Colm O'Rourke and yourself. It was a very, very good team. But were they essentially an uber-aggressive, dirty physical team? Absolutely. Uh, very aggressive. Uh, I've written on a couple of occasions that, you know, we uh, we brought things to the limits. Within our, I'm not going to name them, but within our 15, we definitely had two psychopaths. Uh, and That uh, doesn't include you. No, I was at the back <laughs> of the class. Any time there was a row on the field, I, remember, I, 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 I recount an episode where we and were And who playing. were the psychopaths? I can't name them, but I will Give say... Give us a clue. There was, they, were, they were defenders. What number did they wear? It wasn't Mick Lyons. Right. And everyone thinks Mick Lyons was the big bad wolf, but Mick, Mick did not have to bring his his uh, any physicality really to his game everyone just feared him as it was but I remember one episode against Dublin uh, Vinnie Murphy was playing Dublin had two young cubs playing in the forwards and we set out to really teach them a lesson so it was a bit like Willie John McBride's famous call in South Africa so at a certain stage you know we said you know if anything happens if they raise a finger if anything gets physical off the ball uh, everyone jumps in and I remember hearing something and it's hard to hear things in Crow Park with you know, 60,000 people, 70,000 people. I remember hearing a, a commotion. And when I looked around, uh, there were three Dublin lads on the ground and five or six Mead, people, Mead lads still standing. So the fight started and ended before I even uh, was aware it had happened. So I wasn't, I wasn't at the top of the class when it came to uh, Malise and that's, you, that's So you're situation. innocent, but who was guilty? Ah, we were all was prob- Boylan guilty? We were all guilty to a way. I mean, we would have won nothing without Sean, and Sean is a remarkable man. I mean, like he's just a remarkable human being. But you know what we what, learned, What's remarkable about him? He's just remarkable in terms of how motivation, he, how he or intensity, pe- or focus, or motivation. What? How he works with people, how he inspires people, mainly as, as an inspiration, uh, as a life coach and inspiration. He's just an amazing person. Uh, and he he invested so much time at us on a personal level, every one of us. But in terms of the physicality, what we found on the way up, and this is pointing fingers, I know, Ivan, but I have to point fingers, is that we found on the way up that, you know, we had to match Dublin's aggression. Uh, and we, 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 we set about wondering why we weren't winning and why we weren't successful. And one of the reasons were that we were a good team with lots of skill, but we weren't aggressive enough. And we had to be more aggressive, more physical than Dublin uh, if we were going to beat them. Uh, because Dublin were a very tough team. Dublin in the 70s, you know, they were the hardest footballers you'd ever meet. They were tough men. And was all that legal? Yeah. But was what within we found the out, rules? But what we found out... You know the way we, you can do a fair shoulder charge but you can't do much else? Yeah, I think it was a more... I think the game had a greater level of manliness, manliness uh, in it in our day in terms of it was far more physical, it was dangerous at times, um, but it, everyone knew what they were getting into. Uh, everyone knew the rules of the road. And the rules of the road for us meant we had to out... You know, we had to beat Dublin down physically. But when we did that, we then found that Kerry were twice as physical. They were a whole different kettle of fish. They were, they were even tougher than Dublin. So we learned, you know, on our way up as a team, you know, what you've got to do. And you've got to do a lot of things that you may not want to do. Um, and when we got to the top, yes, we were. We were a ferociously aggressive team. And we probably did bring, uh, you know... We- but when I think of Mick O'Dwyer's four-in-a-row team, mm. nearly five-in-a-row team, and the kind of basketball-flowing style they brought to it, mm. that wasn't really built. I mean, you couldn't say that Pat Spillane or... Uh, Egan and some of the, the bomber. It was all about physicality. It was about ca- catching and kicking and pace and movement off the ball and all those. All things. of that, and they are still the greatest. Kerry, Kerry, the seventy is still the greatest team uh, to have played against them at the latter days. Is the greatest honour of my football career to have been on the same field to have tried to mark Jack O'Shea was you know was the greatest honour of my career. But what I would say is we played Kerry in the nineteen eighty six All Ireland semi final. It was the first time we played them in Championship football, and at the end of the day we lost uh, and. Three of our three of our men were on um, 
you know, were lying down on tables in our dressing room being treated for bad, bad injuries after the game. I mean, they just tore us asunder. They outplayed us. They were far better than us. But physically, they tore us asunder. And your assessment today of the significance of physicality or maybe is it a more skillful, pacey game now? Leaving aside the kind of Ulster defence mm. technique. The game has changed completely. It's more chess-like. It's a smarter game. I prefer it. I, I love it. I find Less it physical? Oh, much less physical. Uh, more athletic, less physical. Uh, and I think, you know, it's it's... Elements of of soccer, elements of other sports have crept into it. So you get a lot of cheating, and you get and a lot sweeping of, systems for hurling and all that kind of thing. Yeah, tactics have changed as well. Oh, it's the game evolving. It's the game evolving as it should. And you're evolve. in favour of it. And Gaelic football didn't evolve for about fifty, sixty years. So I mean, it needed to evolve. But it's, it what happened to Ivan is that it's moved on and evolved dramatically in a short space of time, and that has worried people. But me, I find it fascinating. Okay, let's move on. What is it about the GA off the pitch that you most like? Is it a sense of community? Is it networking? Is it national culture? What is it? That if you were to distill the GA and tell someone from Mars what it is that's great about the GA, what would you say? I would say it's just a community, different communities of good, honest people, real Irish people. That's what it does for me. And I'm not into this sort of Gail Gorey stuff in terms of, you know, you know, the GA stands alone from as any, as any from any other sporting organisation. We had enough of that for long enough. But no, I do think when you go into GA clubs, uh, you meet good, honest people. Uh, and that's the great thing about the GA. And it's representative of so many people in society. You know, rugby and soccer, you know, take different elements in terms of from society. Uh, obviously, rugby is still to this day a more privileged, you know, private school-based uh, sport. Soccer still is traditionally more of the sort of, as you would have called, the working class, you know, in terms of people uh, who are more attracted to soccer. I love soccer. And my, my boys love soccer. But GA, you get a mixture of everybody. Uh, and I think it's representative of, of Irish society. And I think it's, it's, it's representative of good, honest people in Irish society. Talk to me about your brother, Gerard. You shared a bedroom with you. He was your oldest sibling. You looked up to him. And at 24 years of age, he took his own life. I know a lot of people have been touched by family suicide and they actually become quite angry against the person. Mm. Um, give us your whole take on that. Uh, it's a difficult one, Ivan. I mean, again, I've no, obviously no problem talking about it. I never went to therapy for any of of the difficult times I've had in my life, football or business. Um, and I didn't go to therapy after Jared died. So I've been very much on my own. Uh, yeah, I've had a mixture of emotions. I mean, for instance, I'm not sure why, but I can never talk to my mother, Margaret, about Jared. Uh, there is a wall there that I, she wants to talk about him all the time. Uh, I can't talk to her at all about him without getting very angry and without getting very tensed, tensed up. Um, so there's something there that I can't, rightly put my finger on but if I would say can I just to, to mention what I mentioned a moment ago in terms of the GA Jared took his own life in, in our local football field uh, the night he went missing it took us about four or five hours to find him myself and my uncle Brian Smith we found Jared uh, in the field uh, having taken his life and so for me it was as my only brother you know it, it seemed my own world had ended uh, but again within a week Colin O'Rourke came into my house and literally dragged me down to that football field to play a game of football on that same field with my local club screen. And the manner in which, you know, screen football club, the people in that club uh, helped me, helped my family. In many respects, they brought me back to life because when you think, how would you go back to a place, a field, train there in the dark, look at those goalposts, play football matches there with 
two, three thousand people. How would you do that in the place, the very place where your brother ended his own life? And I was able to do it not because of my own courage. Obviously, I had to have certain levels of bravery, but it was because of the people around me that they were able to literally, you know, see to it that I was able to be there and I was able to continue with my football career. Because there was a stage after Jared died that I said, no, I'm never going to play football again, mainly because of the manner in which he took his life. And, and had you any inkling that he was depressed? None, uh, none at all, no. There were, when you look back, there were moments, uh, periods in his life where he made decisions that we hadn't really... Uh, worked out why he had made those decisions. Um, but, uh, you know, he took his life about three days before my 21st birthday. Uh, and it was Why do you think he did? Uh, obviously, he was depressed. Uh, he left a lot of writings. He left books, many books, many jotters with his writings, which, again, part of me is ashamed to say I've never opened them. I always said I would open them and read them, uh, but uh, I've never opened them. I've never read any of his writings. So there may be explanations there. It may seem strange to you or to your it's listeners saying, why have you never opened those jotters? That's where a therapist probably could help me. I've never, I could never open them. I, I just don't get that. I don't get it either. Are you I, afraid? No. Um, I think when you, you, you mentioned anger, that some people can be angry against the person at the start. I, I never thought I was angry with Jared, but there was a lot of different emotions at work and still are at work. Um, but you not think it would be an act of love to do that? Of course it would be, yeah, yeah. And as I say, I'm quite ashamed that I've never have done that. Uh, but well, why don't you do it Monday morning? I don't want to do it. I don't want to do yeah. it. Yeah, and I can't tell you why. And but I, you, I, do, I, do, I, do, a, I do admit that I am. Do you have I'm a better, ashamed to tell you? Do you that. have a better understanding of mental health? You know, I speak to a lot of people. Brezzy and so on, who, who've mm. been very publicly articulate yeah. about phases of their life where they've had He's been mental illness. But, but, but yeah. in your case, mm. um, having been touched by that family incident, life-altering mm. family incident, what have you learned about mental health and reaching out to people who may not be displaying the symptoms but they could be suffering from depression? I have helped. I've done a small bit in terms of helping if I can help in situations or if I can speak at an event or whatever. I mean, I, I'm prepared to do that. And that's the strange thing. I can speak in a, at an event, but I can't speak to my own mother. Uh, but I watch my own mother, Margaret, and she's a remarkable woman, incredible woman. She went through a tough life in, uh, in her own life. Uh, she, you know, her mother died early and she had to look after her father, who's the local schoolmaster, and all her siblings, eight siblings. As a 13-year-old, she became the, the matriarch in the house at 13 years of age. My mum had a hard life, uh, but a good life. Uh, but after Jared's death, she has helped families. And I watch her. So I'm a back street, back, backseat driver, if you like, uh, in that regard. And she has a little book, of her, which she calls it her sad book, of families that she has that have touched base with her and whom she's visited. And there's hundreds of families in that book, people whom she has met, whom she's worked with, whom she's shared her, her time with. And, uh, I, and I think what she has done is, is magnificent. And, 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 and you sort of say as a badge of honour, because mm. I, I have been in therapy myself, mm. and I, I thoroughly recommend it. I would love Insofar to, yeah. as that, like, I have to tell you, for a very logical, rational man who doesn't lack for courage, mm. I mean, it is odd that you wouldn't read the readings, that you wouldn't talk to your mother about this. Mm. I mean, it's it, like, would your wife not say to you, Liam, go cop yourself on and deal with this? Because it does seem to be intensely bottled up. I haven't mm. met you before. Mm. And like, I would say to you, this is not good for you, Liam. I do believe in therapy myself and I've never had therapy. I do believe and I think it's a very good thing. Uh, I always say to people, they, they, we're all mad. 
I mean, everyone's a basket case of some description. Well, some are more mad. Than and I'm a basket case. I know that. <laughs> uh, and that's why I make some very good and some very bad decisions in life. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think at some stage, I've said more recently to Anne, that uh, my wife, that, uh, yeah, I would like, I would, I should go into therapy and should enter therapy soon. So it's something I still, uh, I still hope I will do. Okay. Liam Hayes, my sincere thank you very much for coming in and being our special guest today. Now, just to say, if you've been affected by any of the issues we've been discussing, I want to give you a number for the Samaritans, which you can call. It's 116-123. My thanks again to Liam Hayes for speaking so openly about his career and all aspects of his life. Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.